The electronic overhead projector. Oh my God! Anyway, somebody was talking about death and how it is, what it's going to be like when you go. And one person said, "Well, I want to die peacefully in my sleep, like my grandfather did." Not screaming in terror like the passengers in his car. <laughs> but you know, I write, I read 500 jokes and only one makes me smile. <laughs> so I gotta go with that one. Anyways, well, I've had the privilege of visiting the city of Jerusalem many times, and every time the bus begins that ascent up uh, the hills towards the city, I'm overcome with emotion, remembering all the events that have transpired in Scripture that happen in this city and all the things yet to come. It's very stirring. There's no city more treasured by the Lord than Jerusalem. Who would think this tiny little piece of land could occupy so much of the world's attention? It's clear that throughout history that anything God values and has set his affection on then becomes the target of his enemy, who hates everything God loves. As we look at the restoration and blessing that is promised in this next vision, the fulfillment of it goes beyond the historical restoration of the time of Zechariah, all the way to the time of that future messianic kingdom we all look forward to. We saw last week a vision that describes the destruction of the enemies of Jerusalem, or the restoration of God's people, the temple and the city and the people returning from Babylon is just that first stage in the fulfillment of what is yet to come. I've been helped by many books that I've read, one in particular by uh, David Levy, who is with Friends of Israel, who wrote a book on Zechariah. So let's look at the third vision, the surveyor. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, where are you going? He said to me to measure Jerusalem, to see how wide it is and how long it is. And behold, the angel who was speaking with me was going out, and another angel was coming out to meet him and said to him, Run, speak to the young man, saying, Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of men and cattle within it. For I, declares the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. Zechariah now sees a new vision. It is the third of the eight that he received all in one night. The measuring line is that of the surveyor, and when Zechariah asks where the man with the measuring line is going, he's told to measure the city of Jerusalem. The city was being surveyed in order for its plans for full restoration. This vision is going to express the positive aspects of rebuilding Jerusalem and the return of Israel and the presence of the Lord himself in their midst. Therefore, it is only partially fulfilled at the time of Zechariah. There are some opinions as to who the man with the measuring line is. Many view him as the angel of the Lord who is laying out the full dimensions of the city. His identity is not given, but when you compare this vision with the first one that we saw in chapter 1, it's reasonable that the surveyor is the angel of the Lord. But keep in mind that the message here is a vision from the Lord himself. So it is given to the young man Zechariah, who then passed it on to Israel, and here we are, thousands of years, passed on to us as well. The prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel both speak in visions they had about Jerusalem being measured as well. And then in Revelation 11, the, the temple will be measured as well. So the interpreting angel tells the latter angel to give understanding to the young man, Zechariah, 
to run with news of Jerusalem being reconstructed. What an encouraging word from God for all those working on the temple. God then gives four promises in this vision. First one being prosperity. There will be a multitude of people and livestock so that the city will overflow its bounds. That means Jerusalem will be much larger when it is rebuilt. The population will be huge and ultimately being fulfilled during the time of the millennial kingdom where at that time Jerusalem will be the capital of the world. This certainly is not the case today. Israel may be held by very few nations, but God says in the future, he will be their help. He'll be their protector. This has obviously not been fulfilled yet, but it will be one day. God promises protection by saying, I will be a wall of fire around her. The Lord himself declares he will be her wall as the divine protector. He'll protect them for all who would try to annihilate and bring harm. Not only that, but his glory will be in Jerusalem. The same Shekinah glory that once filled the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and in the temple will be there in the midst of Jerusalem. The prophet Ezekiel spoke of the Shekinah glory of God filling the future millennial temple. How amazing that during the millennial kingdom, the Lord will unveil his glory to all who live in Jerusalem, also seen in the New Testament, spoken in Revelation 21. Thirdly, the population will be multiplied. As you recall, the majority of Jewish people at the time of Zechariah still stayed back in Babylon and didn't return to the land as some had done. So they're being encouraged, escape, you are living with the daughter of Babylon. It's time to go home. The captivity was God's judgment. It's time to be back in your land, the promised land, and worshiping the Lord. And then punishment to the nations who destroyed Israel and have brought such horrific damage to the Jerusalem and to the people. Surely I will wave my hand over them so that they will be plundered for their slaves. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. This speaks of a day that's coming when God the Father sends the Messiah, which he did in his first coming and in the second coming, to show his glory as well as his judgment on Israel's enemies. A part of God being glorified will include enemies of Israel being uh, dealt with and punished. When the kingdom of Israel is restored, those enemies will be its servants. The Father will send the angel of the Lord to accomplish all of these things. And then all will see God's incredible faithfulness and love to keep his promises to Israel. Next we read how precious the Jewish people are to God in verse 8. For he who touches you touches the apple of God's eye. The word apple speaks of the pupil in the iris of the eye that lets the light in to reflect the images uh, on the retina. It's a very tender and sensitive place. and has to be guarded from any foreign objects that could bring it injury. So in the same way, the Jewish people are precious in the sight of God and must be guarded. Injury done to Israel is injury done to God himself. Way back when God made his Abrahamic covenant with Abraham back in Genesis 12, he made it clear that I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And then they sing for joy. Sing because of God's presence. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst, says the Lord. Again, we see that the Messiah, in all of his glory, will take up residence in Jerusalem and will reign on the throne of David, fulfilling all the promises made. That is reason for joy and singing.
Every people from every nation will come to know and see the Lord, be joined in worship of him at the, in Jerusalem. Gentiles will worship the Jewish Messiah as he reigns from Jerusalem. And what a privilege of Judah. And the Lord will take possession of Judah as his inheritance in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. So many today think that because the majority of people who make up the church are not Jews, that God is through with the promises to Israel because of their national unbelief and rejection of the Messiah. But that is contrary to scripture. And listen to this very closely. The election of Israel as God's chosen people is unconditional and irrevocable. Just like his election of his New Testament believers. We see here that God made it clear that his covenant with Israel and the portion for her inheritance stands firm. The Lord will possess Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. This is God reaffirming his choice of Jerusalem. In the statement, the Holy Land, is the only time it ever occurs here in the Bible. Now, I know people going to Israel often say, I'm going to the Holy Land, but you don't have to be very, very long and realize it's not the Holy Land <laughs> at this point. Uh, I'm sure the land will not be holy until Israel's sins are removed at the second coming of the Messiah. Then Israel will be called the holy priest, and they will be made his priests and his servants. When we get to chapter 14, we will see all of these prophecies fulfilled in the millennium. Next, be silent before Jehovah. Verse 13, be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. Zechariah now calls on all men everywhere to be still and to be silent and be in awe of God. <clears throat> the great judge will deal with the enemies of his people. I couldn't help but think of another time where people, um, where there was complete silence. In Revelation 8, 1, it says there will be silence in heaven about 30 minutes when the seventh seal of judgment is broken before the trumpet judgment begins. And at that point, God is dealing out the most violent of all his judgments. And the, the great tribulation is going on. And there will be silence. We have seen in our study in these first two chapters, uh, it's God's judgment of the nations, but blessings for, and glory for Israel. We see in chapter 2, many nations will join Israel in worship of the Messiah. But that does not change his choice of his people and the Holy Land. How amazing is the patience of God with Israel? And if you're amazed by that, you shouldn't be too amazed because how amazing is the patience of God with you and with me? The psalmist tells us, be still and know that I am God. You, need, you and I need to stop long enough in our busy lives every day where we are silent before him and let him speak to us through his word. Certainly the vision uh, we have seen looks forward to a time of complete safety in the future day for Israel. And God will keep all these promises. We see the very nature of God, and I hope that you see that. You're looking at what he's promised to Israel. I hope you see his nature and his attributes, because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The New Testament makes it clear that all those who have trusted Jesus for forgiveness for their personal sins, then enter into a relationship with God the Father, and he adopts us into his family. And as our Heavenly Father, we know he's all-powerful. We saw last week he is the Lord of hosts. So we know that he has all power at his disposal, all the armies of all the angels in heaven, to meet any need that we may have in this life. 
I find such hope and encouragement in these truths of who God is and what he's like. If you are his child, and he has made you a royal priest, you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. He is a shield and a refuge and a place of safety for his children. We are studying about a time in the future when God's kingdom does finally come to earth, where he will rule from Jerusalem. And we have seen that we will be, um, there will be an amazing time of blessing and safety and beauty. And though we're not Israel, as I said, the character of a loving God and caring Father reminds us that he is our protector as well. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. He is, as it were, your ring of fire in the sense that there is nothing that can happen to you outside of his loving and protecting plan for your life. He is your place of safety. <clears throat> he is your protection in the midst of the storms of life. <clears throat> Excuse me. One day, all dangers will be past, and we will be in awe in his presence. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness, Paul says, <clears throat> and from the wrath to come. He is our wall of protection in this very fleeting life. Therefore, he is worthy of our trust. For those who have come to faith in Jesus, we will have great joy to be a part of this future kingdom that we've just seen in the vision. But that reality, and looking at it, ought to give us encouragement when we face pain, heartache, stress, emotional struggles, because this here and now is so temporary. But living with him in glory, that is forever. This is the little droplet in time and scale of eternity. This is our time. So whatever it is he calls on you to endure, he'll give you the grace. And it, it's just, it's a moment compared to what we have to look forward to. When we move now to the fourth vision, we see this in chapter 3, and it's totally different than the others that we've seen. There's no interpreting angel. Zechariah's not saying, who's that? What's this? Um, no questions. In chapter 1, we saw Zechariah's call for repentance in the first six verses. And what he was revealing is that those who had returned to the land were not spiritually prepared for their new life and worship in Jerusalem. It wasn't enough that they were just back in the land and, okay, let's get back building the temple. They needed to be cleansed from their sins so they could have restoration and a renewed communion with God and, and God in worship. Israel being cleansed, then, is the theme of this vision. There had to be an internal cleansing as well in the priestly office and function so it could be properly reinstated. So that brings us to the cleansing of Israel in chapter 3, and we begin with Joshua accused by Satan in verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. This vision begins with Zechariah, being a witness, as it were, uh, into a courtroom scene almost in heaven. Joshua was Israel's high priest. Notice he's standing. His high priest's work was never done. Only Jesus sat down at the right hand after he completed the work of redemption as our high priest. But the high priest never sat down. So he's standing there. He had come with uh, Zerubbabel, with the first group of those returning to Babylon, Joshua, this high priest, and now he's standing before the angel of the Lord, which was his place of service as the high priest. But Satan is right there to oppose and accuse. According to Leviticus 21.10, the high priest had to be ritually cleaned before he could minister before the Lord. 
Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ. Satan changes scene from a priestly one to an attack, an accusation. As always, Satan stands ready to accuse as if he is a prosecuting attorney. In a court of law, we know that Satan has accessibility to the throne of God, where he accuses God's people day and night, according to Job 1 and Revelation 12. Satan is charging Joshua and the nation of Israel. He was ready to review all the reasons why uh, Israel was so unworthy of God's blessings and his election of them. The evidence against the nation of Israel and even Joshua could not be disputed before a holy God. Satan had all the facts. They were guilty of sin. They were worthy of God's judgment. Satan knew it was a guilty verdict, but that is where the amazing grace of God comes in and changes everything. As one author put it, when Satan talks to us about God, you know, that's like, he doesn't care. Why did he let this happen? Why doesn't he answer your prayer? That's him talking to us about God. But when he talks to God about us, he tells the truth. I mean, there's enough to say, right? That's true. Accusations of our failures. Well, the advocate, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? The word Lord appears three times in just this one verse, and it is speaking of two different persons of the Godhead, uh, triune Godhead. The angel of the Lord is the advocate for Israel, and answers the accuser. The first angel of the Lord has already been identified as a pre-incarnate Christ, we saw in chapter 1. But the Lord who rebukes Satan refers to God the Father who directly rebukes Satan with a finality. God's choice of Israel and his purposes for Israel overrule any attack Satan brings against the nation. God's unmerited grace is the only basis for the Lord's election of Israel. It wasn't because they were worthy. And it's the same with us today. His covenant relationship with Israel is based on grace. Therefore, Israel is guaranteed survival, even though Satan continually attempts to destroy and annihilate his people from the earth. Jeremiah says, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for the light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea that its rays roar? The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, and the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation from before me forever. There's so many verses like that throughout the prophets. To pull a branch out of the fire, uh, goes on to say here, God speaks of Israel surviving by posing a question, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? To pull a branch out of the fire keeps it from being consumed by that fire. Israel has been delivered from destruction how many times? Whether you go back to their times of slavery in Egypt, captivities, and wow, the great future tribulation where two-thirds will be killed. And and when we get to chapter 13, that's speaking about the great tribulation in Zechariah here, we read verse 9, And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested, They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. The truth clearly presented here is that God promises to defend and deliver Israel from all her enemies, even Satan, 
And like the burning bush that you see in Exodus 3, Israel will go through fires of affliction, but they will not be completely consumed. Joshua is cleansed then. Notice, uh, now Joshua is clothed with filthy garments standing before the angel. And the word for filthy garments here is the most vile kind. I assume some of you saw that in your studies. It really is a reference to excrement. Uh, Joshua is standing before the court, stained on his clothes with excrement. He and his people completely unworthy of God's mercy, acquittal, or blessing. The nation and their high priest stand condemned, unable to deliver themselves. But God speaks in verse 4. Remove the filthy garments from him. See, I have taken away your iniquity, away from you, and I will clothe you with festal robes. And at the command of the Lord, angels remove Joshua's filthy garments and replace them with clean festive robes, a symbol of, God, of purity. And then Zechariah chimes in, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, clothed him with garments, while the angel of the Lord was standing by. According to Exodus 28, the clean turban worn by the high priest had a gold plate on it, engraved with the words, Holiness to the Lord. This clean turban was put on Joshua's head as a picture of moral and spiritual cleansing, so that now he was fitted, fit to be reinstated as high priest. Isaiah talked about a time in the future when Israel would be cleansed and be priests and servants of their God in the millennial kingdom, Isaiah 61. As this was being done, the angel of the Lord was standing by, blessing this procedure. So Joshua then is admonished. The angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, if you will perform my service, then you will also govern my house and also have charge of my court." and I will grant you free access among those who are standing here, amongst the angels. Joshua is told to walk, conduct himself as God's law commands. Then he was to keep God's commands and faithfully perform the priestly services. The result of his obedience would mean he would be ruler of God's temple, protector of the temple from idolatry, and he would have access to God just as the angels do. So Joshua's cleansing really affirms Israel's future. That's what this, the point of this whole vision is. Now listen, Joshua, the high priest. I'm going to bring in my servant, the branch. So God now talks to Joshua and his fellow priests with this long-anticipated announcement. The men sitting with Joshua are a sign of Israel's future cleansing and conversion. And when will this ultimately happen? When the Messiah comes back. He will redeem Israel. He will cleanse her of her sin, as I read in, from Zechariah 13. There are three terms used to describe the Messiah in these next verses. He's called my servant. Christ made it clear he was the servant of God when he came and paid for our sins. He's called the branch, a proper name for Messiah used by Jeremiah and Zechariah. Messiah, the branch, will remove iniquity of Israel and bring cleansing at a second coming. And he's also called the stone. For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua on one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. And that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. The Messiah is seen in scripture. How many times you spread? He's the stone of stumbling. He's the cornerstone. He's the smiting stone. But the stone is, uh, of the Messiah here mentioned is seven eyes. speaks of him all-seeing, all-knowing, omniscient Messiah. 
And what is engraved on that stone, we're not told, but it has something to do with the Messiah's future removal of all of Israel's sins. At the Messiah's second coming, iniquity will be removed from Israel. God will pour out his spirit on his people. They will repent. They will mourn their sin, and they will finally recognize the Messiah and be saved. And we'll see this when we get to chapters 12 and 13. So in that day speaks of a time when Israel will finally experience peace, prosperity, contentment. You know you can just sit outside under the tree talk to your neighbor. No fear. God does his divine uh, purpose, ha has his divine purpose for Israel, and that has never changed. And in that day, Israel will be rescued by God from the fires of annihilation. They will be clothed with righteousness. What hope? I mean, think about it for Zechariah having this vision. What hope? What motivation to keep on, let's get this temple done. And knowing God's promises. What encouragement. God keeps all his promises. That's who he is. And the person who comes to Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, recognizing their need for forgiveness of their personal sins, is reminded so many of the same truths that we have seen in this vision when we come to him. We also have an accuser. But his accusations don't hold any weight because we have an advocate pleading our cause. That sin was paid for. No, that sin was paid for by my blood, making it possible for us to be forgiven all of God showers his own with unmerited favor and uh, undeserved favor and grace, just like he will do with Israel. All who come to Jesus are cleansed and given the righteousness of Christ. These future events in Israel, in one sense, can be a reality in our hearts today of all those who recognize their sin, turn from their sin, trust the Jewish Messiah for forgiveness. The same unchanging God of Israel offers the same mercy to rebellious people like you and me. Repentance follows obedience. That's what is commanded here to the high priest. And that is the way we're all supposed to walk. That is the name of everyone in mankind. Come to Christ for repent and repent of your sin and then walk in the ways he has prescribed in his word. Make sure you have been cleansed judicially by the God of the universe. That's when you're saved from the penalty of your sin. And then keep on being cleansed, walking in close fellowship with the all-knowing God of the universe. Let's pray. God, I thank you for how amazing you are. I thank you. I mean, we're looking at this going, uh-huh, uh-huh. But one day, those of us who know you are going to see this all and be a part of it all. How amazing that will be. I pray that in light of our future, we would live today in a way that would please you. That we would lay up and store up treasure in heaven by our walking in obedience and honoring you with our lives today. Thank you for a future hope that just like you never gave up on Israel and you haven't, you don't give up on us either, Lord. Thank you for your patience and your mercy and undeserved faith.